sum up uh, a little bit of what we've been up to uh, the last several weeks as we've been looking at Romans chapter 7 and 8. I don't know if you've caught it, but actually we've been reevaluating why Christ died. I've given uh, an understanding that I think is right out of Paul, uh, but it's a reworking of classical notions of why Jesus died. And the point has been to describe the fact that Jesus did not die simply to satisfy the law, but he died to found a new sort of humanity. And to enable our passage from one kind of person to another kind of person. So Paul's understanding of sin and salvation is to be found then in the identifiable shift from the subject of what in 7-7 is described as the death-dealing lie to the subject found in Christ. The one living by the Spirit. In chapter 8. But one of, the, one of the implications of rethinking sin and salvation in light of this is rather that in understanding salvation and primarily in terms of the law, you know, this is the divine satisfaction in Anselm. The primary focus in our doctrine of sin will be on defi- identifying sin as a lie, as a deception, a death-dealing lie. And salvation then is understood as, in large part, uh, the displacement of this lie with an alternative dynamic. And so we are reconstituted. In one instance, we are, you know, the dynamics of who we are is understood on the basis of a deception. In the other, the dynamics of who we are is on the basis of our being reconstituted in Christ. Now there's an overlap here that has been, you know, that we're talking about a deep psychological thing. And in fact, uh, in psychoanalysis, many have understood that the human subject is in fact structured in a way similar to what Paul is describing. You know, Freud posited the idea of the superego. We could say, well, that's actually Paul's law, a kind of punishing sense of the law. Freud talked about the ego and That's the same word that Paul uses. That is the Greek word uh, for I. Uh, There is the id. In German and Freud used it just means the word it. Uh, And Paul will use uh, the idea of the body of death. And each of these function like a lie analogous then to the deception of sin. In Paul the sinful subject takes two forms. And we've described that. One Paul refers to as perverse in Galatians. The other Paul does not name specifically, but he describes it as in an agonistic struggle. I'll call him the agonist, uh, if you will. And these two types of persons are determined in the stance that they take toward desire. Now, I think desire is definitive of both of them. Neither are Christian. Don't lose track here. But because I think sometimes we fail to name and describe 
the deliverance that is available in Christ, that in fact what we're describing this morning may include many people, the majority, I'm not going to say, of people calling themselves Christians. So I think we need to identify these two types of persons. And Paul is saying, these are sinful people. This isn't Christianity. So I think our failure to read Romans correctly, to read the New Testament correctly, is that we've ended up just reduplicating the problem very often that Christianity is meant to save us from. And we fall into the same pattern that Paul is describing as sinful. Um, So let's talk about both types of person. Recognize that desire is definitive of who and what they are. And that by the time we get to Romans 8, this is not at all what we're talking about. So the lie, or we could call it the primordial deception, the fundamental set, uh, fantasy in Romans chapter 7, 11, is connected to desire. And this then gives rise to this sinful subject. What needs to be remembered about both types is, and I'm, I'm going to say this, listen to what I'm saying, that morality or the law in Paul's description is simply another name for desire. In other words, the two things get, conf- they get fused. Uh, Freud would remark, you know, in regard, you know, Kant's categorical imperative, the categorical imperative, I would only do that which what I would, would will to be done universally. Freud's point is, well, actually that is an imperative handed down not by your morality or not by some, uh, it's in fact your superego. The superego is not moral, the superego is immoral. So this agrees with Paul's picture. Our morality, our righteousness, is precisely our immorality and unrighteousness outside of Christ. Human desire is the real ground of human morality. It's the ground of the law. And this desire is such that it would use the law, it would use a supposed morality as a means of self-justifying ideology. Where we might imagine that necessity, you know, is the thing that carries us along. That we, it was necessary. Well, what Paul is describing is, in fact, that your will is the necessity you've been serving. Your desire is the necessity that you've been serving and nothing else. You have fabricated the causes of the law. You have fabricated this kind of morality. You have created the necessities and it's in, they've been given birth in by your desire. That's the significance of Romans chapter 7. The passage into Christ and Christianity is mis- meant to displace our willful, self-justifying morality. And so the danger is that we do not recognize the work of Christ. And the specific nature of sin 
which he destroys uh, in you know human personality in uh, our self-justifying systems. So the danger here, the great tragedy, is that Christ can be made into an aid in our project of fulfilling our desire. This is the failed Christianity, I'm afraid, that we are surrounded by. The indicators that ethics or the law is simply the articulation of human desire is the portrayal of Romans 7. Paul brings these together. He says, do not desire, do not covet. How do you do that? The command itself, do not desire, provokes desire. That's what he's saying. The law of desire constitutes an exponential desire. He's describing this thing that it builds and it eventually kills you. The law, morality, ethics is intertwined with this desire so that they cannot be unfused from one another. Uh, One can never attain the object of desire. That's obvious to us, right? That it's always an object that eludes us. Um, But so too, one can never obtain the law. One can never be made perfect. There's no end to the agonistic struggle. It's a moral struggle. It's a struggle caused by desire that Paul is depicting. So Paul makes it clear that desire or covetousness is the foundation of our ethics and morality outside of Christ. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, not because it's a dim sort of righteousness, but precisely because it is our righteous desire which makes us evil. Thus the system is one in which we would do evil to make grace abound. And so Romans 7 pictures two types of personalities. The perverse individual. And this perverse individual does not and cannot question the structure of the law. He cannot question his own implication in evil and sin. So this perverse person, this pervert, if you will, uh, would imagine that peace is achieved through war. At a national level, they would see the Christian's duty as, you know, you fight and you do violence to gain peace. This sort of individual only sees uh, the, the, the keeping of the law is really always connected with immorality, transgression. They would vote for their favorite political candidate, though he be evil, so that good would come. Shall we sin that grace may abound? They are willing to hurt other people, destroy the other's livelihood, oppress their families for the good of the kingdom. So these are the Muslim and Christian fundamentalists. They're willing to literally kill in the name of God. Evil is a necessity as it is the only means of achieving righteousness in this perverse understanding. These are the crusaders who imagine that they stand in the place of God as a medium of the law. 
And in a perverse Christianity, they will be our Christian executioners. Our Christian soldiers, our Christian politicians. The leaders in our Christian organizations who are ever so willing to destroy, denigrate, and defile the other, all in the name of Jesus, in the name of God. They see themselves as the instruments of God, the conduits of his will on earth, so that what they are doing is simply passively turning themselves over to the will of God. What they're actually doing is serving their own will. Let's not be confused here. What they're serving is their own desire. They have confused the law and the morality, but they've done it willfully. They are incapable of questioning. And this is Paul's point. There's the one who questions and there's the one who does not question. They are incapable of questioning their own goodness or their own status. As they are the very instruments of God in the hands of God. What they cannot imagine is that they are of their father the devil. And this is Jesus' accusation. They pervert the truth. They create hell on earth for all but themselves. Christians who hurt other people in the name of Christ crucify Christ again and make his work of no effect. Paul calls these people perverse or perverts because they are the sort of people that are ultimately capable of the worst sort of evil. They do evil in the name of God. And their religion assures them of righteousness and the necessity of the evil they commit. These are the ones who are in leadership in Israel, who are the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They explain the logic of their perverse understanding. You know, in the mouth of Caiaphas, Jesus must die that the nation might be saved. We have an entire system of atonement. I'll talk a little bit about next week. That is constructed then on this system, this perverse system. These are the religious teachers that arise in the very first church in the New Testament and are trying to make the law, morality, their desire, the primary thing. Where the goal is to keep the law or to achieve morality... There is this intense focus upon power and the perverse enjoyment of hurting others through this power. They would lord it over others, Paul says, and make them twice the sons of hell that they are. This type of person will say of their hurting somebody, I had to do it. I had no choice. It was my ethical duty. God, Or the good of the kingdom required that I hurt you. Oh, sorry, I hurt you. But the other, you know, whatever that other is, required that I do so. It was in the name of the greater good. It was the boss. It was Jesus. It was my ethical duty. If you have any objections, take it up with the boss. Take it up with Jesus. Take it up with God. I'm only acting in their name. 
So this person hides behind the law under the pretense of righteousness and they derive their pleasure from pain, from the hurting of other people. Think of the Nazis here, you know, the middle class, music loving, string, you know, the, the, the uh, one young man who grew up next to one of the death camps said when he had, would come home and in the evening, my father would play classical music. And it was just a lovely middle class home. Of course, during the day he was killing Jews. Uh, think of Adolf Eichmann, good, you know, middle class bureaucrat, achieved great heights in the Nazi regime. Uh, he just said, I was carrying out orders. I was a good bureaucrat. What would happen in this world if we disobeyed orders? I was only obeying orders. Maybe I could you know, say about myself, maybe I have some hurtful information about someone, maybe somebody I don't like. And if this person learns of it, he will, it will cause him great pain. And so I choose to tell him, but I say, well, I'm just telling the truth. It's my duty to tell the truth, right? Well, there is a double deception that takes place. First of all, I deceive myself about my own intentions. I really want to hurt him. I want to hurt someone and I use my religion, I reuse my ethics, I use all of this as a kind of justification. And there is a further deception. It is the deception that the law, duty, Jesus, the good of the kingdom, or whatever you want to call it, is in some way ready-made, pre-existing the situation. As if the law, Jesus, the greater good, is outside of our involvement in a particular situation. In other words, I don't even have to think. I don't even have to consider the ethical consequences. I just do it. I tell the truth. And if you challenge someone like this, You say, oh, you just seem to like hurting people. They will say, no, it hurt me too. I had to muster great strength to tell the truth in this situation. You can see that I myself am suffering for the truth. I'm a kind of martyr. It could not be avoided. I truly did not want to kill six million Jews. But I must do my duty. I did not want to destroy your livelihood, your career, but the gospel of God requires it. I did not want to tell you the truth, but I was required to by Jesus, the law, God. I don't know if you've seen the musical. I I didn't read the book, and I don't think very many people have read Victor Hugo's. Les Miserables, how do you say it? Uh, you know, the miserables, the wretched, the miserable ones is the English translation. But it struggle, it follows the struggles of a convict, Jean Valjean. And Valjean, you know, he begins, he's a convict, he gets out of prison. And a priest takes him in for the night, gives him shelter. And the next day, Valjean gathers up all the silverware. And runs off with it. And the police catch him and they bring him back to the priest's house. And he says, oh, 
Brother Valjean, you forgot to take the candlesticks too. And so the police, you know, let him go. And the priest says, you take this, these candlesticks, you take this silverware, and you sell it. And you dedicate your life to doing good. God has spared you, and you should use this money to make an honest man of yourself. So six years passed, and the next scene is, you know, Valjean has become very wealthy. He's become the owner of a factory. And he's even the mayor of this little town that he lives in. And by the way, Victor Hugo's basing a lot of these characters on actual people that he knew. Actual, he actually knows a man that, uh, even this next scene, that he's walking down the street and there is a man who's pinned under a wagon and no one will help him. Uh, everybody, you know, no one wants to volunteer, even, uh, uh, even for pay. And Valjean had been a very powerful man. He had been very strong. And he would, crawls under the wagon and he lifts the cart off the man. And there is at this scene a police inspector. The French word here, Javert, Javert, I don't know how, Javert, how do you say his name, Trent? Something like that. Okay. Who was an adjutant guard at the prison where Valjean was incarcerated. And he had never, he remembered this man was very powerful. And when he saw somebody, he saw him lift this wagon, he knew there was only one other man that could possibly do that. So he had, you know, he had changed his name and kind of disguised himself. This becomes the point of his life, is to capture Valjean and put him back into prison. And so, this is in the midst of the revolution in France. And the, you know, the world is kind of falling apart. And so there's these two characters. One representative of the law. The other, the one representative of outside of the law. And in the meantime, the whole legal system is coming apart. And so, the police inspector goes undercover. And he's working among the rebels and they recognize him and want to kill him. And Valjean says, I'll do the job. I'll execute him. And he takes him out. And of course he doesn't. He just shoots the pistol in the air. And the police inspector runs off. But in the meanwhile, Valjean himself and the, the rebels have been defeated. He's crawling through the sewers. And he comes out. And the police inspector finds him and was going to arrest him. He's so devoted to the law. Uh, and to not arrest him, you know, is going to undo his life. And it does. He decides not to arrest Valjean. He lets him go. But the next scene, he's killing himself. He can't live in a world in which the law is not the case. In the perverse struggle to enact the law, to make the law everything. Actual human beings are abused and oppressed for some notion of the good or the law that is in fact, in fact not law, not morality, not ethics. Think of the woman taken in adultery. You know, they're actually bringing her, not the man, 
They're going to kill the woman. And Jesus, of course, undoes their whole system uh, in, in the little conversation they have. So the Pharisees are the perverts in Jesus' day. You know, think of the Sabbath controversy. Jesus would uh, heal the lame, the sick, the blind on the Sabbath. And they would kill Jesus. They would persecute those he's healed because the law is more important than the people. Like the police inspector, they cannot presume to question the law. The law is absolute. They would even kill the Son of God in the name of the law. They would kill goodness itself in the name of the law. And of course we have to ask, well what law are they really serving other than the law of their own will? The the law of their own desire. So the perverse understanding of the law, the forbidden desire, it's synonymous with and gives rise to sin. The pervert does not question the status of the law. He does not question his relationship to the law. There is no struggle here. There is no question. His conscience is completely free. He does not confess sin. Because he cannot see his own evil. He cannot have empathy with other people. Because the only thing that concerns him is his own desire. And the law that he follows. He lies. You know deception is key to this sort of person. In both Jesus' description and Paul's description. It's a daily part of his speech. And yet he is incapable of seeing himself as a liar because his entire life is built upon deception. In Paul's depiction, it's built upon a primordial lie in which his will and desire is the only ethic, the only law he serves. He seeks to lord it over others in a position of leadership. And this is the likely place that you're to encounter this type They will be the religious leaders. They will be the Pharisees of the day. Because they seek power. They seek respectability. And yet they are like Eichmann. They are without depth. You know, Hannah Arendt talks about Eichmann. The banality of evil. The man is, you know, he is incapable of imagination. Um... He is without depth as the idea is that this perverse person is just caught up in the appearance of things, the impression that he makes. He is nearly incapable of any profound thought. He has an incapacitated imagination. Technique, not substance, fascinates him as his whole life is taken up in the manipulation of others and the mechanics of that manipulation. The law is a law of how things work. The other person that Paul describes is one who questions the law. You know, shall we sin that grace may abound? This person says, no, we don't do that. The perverse person says, yes, we do that. Without question. 
The perverse individual does not question his status before the law, but the second type of person is defined by his struggle. The pervert, you know, projects the struggle onto the world. This is agonistic type person that feels the struggle within themselves. Doing the very thing he does not want. And wanting to do the thing he cannot do. This type of person questions the perverse understanding. Should we really sin to establish the law? Should we really do evil that good might come? And Paul provides the question and answer. Uh, certainly not. Is the law sin? No, it's not. It does not deal in that. That is, shall I sin and do evil on behalf of the law? Paul says, no. That's not Christian. That's not Jewish. That's not of the kingdom of God. And of course, if the law is in your favor in some way, or seem to be so, you're unlikely to question it. Like the Pharisees, if you're one of those the law seems to favor, you will accept the good gifts of life and grace that you get by participating in evil structures so that you might reap the benefits. If you're one of those who, on the other hand, are oppressed by the law, and I think this is the second type person, it can be either personally, privately, or in reality, you may in fact be a transgressor of the law. That's what's pictured in the New Testament. But it's the lawbreakers. It's the, you know, the prostitutes and the thieves and the, the people who are in some way outside of the society who recognize their need, who perceive themselves as poor, oppressed. Maybe they're just spiritually poor, but nonetheless. There is a kind of Christianity, though, which imagines this is as good as Christianity can do. This person lives in the tension of continually questioning, striving, you know, attempting to be good and never able to attain it, continually struggling in sin. The lure of the law and of desire does not fit with what seems right. She would fight to gain peace. They would... uh, Uh, You know, it's, uh, shall we hurt the others for the common good? This person would say, no, we shouldn't do that. But they don't, uh, they're kind of immobilized in the struggle. Uh, Shall we sin that grace may abound? Well, in a sense, they would say, we all have, uh, all we have is the struggle with sin. Um, They recognize that they have an ideal of themselves that is impossible. So this this is the two pictures, you know. Uh, They can never be the ideal that the law holds out. And they do not have this unquestioning comfort of the pervert, of the perverse person. But their life is given over to turmoil and struggle and angst. In Victor Hugo's novel, Jean Valjean and the police inspector, they're engaged in a struggle between those inside and outside the law. But of course, France is coming undone. In a sense, this is the scene of the New Testament that is taking place with Judaism. It's falling apart. 
the religion and society of the Jews. The Romans are going to destroy the temple. They are persecuting the Jews. But next to Romans 7, in which the law is the thing, is Romans 8. Next to the reign of the law of Judaism is the suspension of the law found in Christianity. You know, perhaps of the two types of person, the agonist has found the possibility of reordering or reordering his subjectivity, aware of the kind of fundamental lie of society and culture. There is no life in the law or in the symbolic, and yet that's the only source, seemingly. The perverts are the ones, they're the enforcers of the law. But the agonist sees their own transgression of the law and questions it. They may be the outcasts, the oppressed, the poor, the impoverished. And yet they're not yet Christian. They are those who are caught up in the struggle. Maybe though they are prepared for conversion more than the pervert. The danger is the fascination of hovering over the fact that the structures of the world were no structures at all. You know, think of the matrix. Having departed the matrix, the danger is you'll fall back into it. You'll want to return. Having departed or understood the matrix of the law is a kind of virtuality. The danger is you'll want to return, and that's the danger that the early church is facing. Forever battling, you know, the good Marxist is never gives up the struggle. But what Marxism has come to is nothing but struggle. And for many people, that's what their lives, many Christians, that's what their lives amounts to. There is no utopia in this system. In some ways, has proven more evil because it tends to fall back then into some form of perversity. To some unquestioning perversion. So only in recognizing that the law, society, politics, respectability will not save you. Only then is one completely able to recognize both the perversion and the agonist. In dying with Christ, Paul says, only then will they recognize the lie, the deception of sin. Those who were made dead to the law through the body of Christ no longer serve the letter of the law. That is, they no longer serve the obscene notion of the law. Let us do evil that good may abound. But neither is their life given over to the struggle of desire, which in the end is simply another form of servitude to the law of desire. You know, whether it's a perverse, unquestioning understanding or one given over to continual questioning, it's still the reign of desire. Paul's picture of death to sin and baptism is not simply, oh, we pass, we recognize the destitution, the perversion, but it involves being joined to Christ and an ontological participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. We're joined to the body of Christ, and that means this body here, this group here. And this displaces the body of death. The resurrection life of the Spirit, as we've talked about it. So Paul's resolution of the alienation of the subject, the law, 
is to truly become a child of God through the power of the Spirit. The ego, the I, the imaginary is crucified or dies with Christ and the life in the, in, in the it, it, new life is found in Christ, in the identity of the body of Christ. Paul's resolution to fear. Is your life controlled by fear? Is your life controlled by frustration? I think it is if you're living life in the, you know, in the, the eye of Romans 7. Uh, life in the spirit is conjoined to the categories we have hope. We are adopted as God's children. We participate in the Trinity. And we've had a series of sermons that have outlined that. Now let me conclude just by saying very quickly, quickly, what difference does this make? The first difference is that this understanding includes both the social, the plurality of persons, and the individual. It suggests a different focus than is sometimes found in a theology especially coming out of Anselm of Canterbury that is just sort of pervasive, that focuses upon divine satisfaction. You know, here an infinite offense requiring an infinite payment for infinite satisfaction. It's an exchange that takes place between the Father and the Son that leaves out the world of human beings. And so in Amsal's picture, the death of Christ only serves ironically to strengthen human will. But what I've just described is human will is precisely our problem. Human will is actually, human desire is actually that thing which lies behind the supposed law that we serve. And so we have a Christianity that is focused upon human interiority, the human individual, the law, though, is left up and running. We, you know, Christ died to meet the requirements of the law, but the very law Anselm is describing seems to be the law of human desire, the law of sin and death, the law of satisfaction. So there is this focus on the individual, I think it's there in Paul's description, very much so. In fact, it's an even more intimate focus on the individual. But there's also the focus on the social. Uh, you know, where individualism we might you know, connect with conservatism or fundamentalism. Uh, liberalism has tended to focus on changing society structures. Uh, in its various forms, in liberation theology, or even before that, some sort of social reform. The now of the kingdom for many Christian liberals is emphasized, but there is no actual kingdom of God, the church that is an alternative culture, and there's no future fulfillment in the church. So the claim I'm going to make for what I've done is that due to the focus on sin as a lie distorting the law, it accounts both for the individual and the social that societal structures themselves are based upon the same deception. So we need to recognize with the, you know, sin is a system we need to be able to identify. We, can, we need to identify these kinds of persons and say this isn't Christianity 
This is something different. If we don't do that, the danger is that we make our Christianity perverse or we just make it more struggle when in fact we are to be founded as a new kind of subject. Sin then in this understanding is no mystery. We can identify it. If you hurt people, if you do evil, the good may abound. If you continue to struggle with sin, that's not Christianity. That's the perversion that Paul is fighting against. For Paul, the truth of Christ stands over and against the lie of sin. Christ exposes the lie of sin. But for many of us, I'm afraid the lie has not been exposed. Uh, Christ relegates death and the law of sin and death and desire. All of these things are displaced in resurrection life. And there's a depth of the mystery of the truth of Christ that directly, you know, why is Christ the truth? He's the truth over and against this lie, this deception that we very often are not conscious of. That this perverse law, this agonistic struggle can be displaced by the transcendence, the true mystery, the truth that is Christ. Uh, So, in this understanding that I'm describing, salvation depends upon a kind of revelation. We need a word to break into our consciousness to say, hey, you've been deceived, and here's what this deception looks like. Here's the way this orientation functions. And I believe that this is precisely what we have. That the subject at both the conscious and unconscious level, uh, the work of sin is exposed and the identity grounded in this dynamics, uh, the mystery is cleared because of the truth that we have in Christ. Let's see.